Good morning, Journey. Oh, that wasn't good enough. Good morning, Journey. Man, thank you guys so much for being here with us today, leading worship. Barry Callen, I never sing that song without thinking about you and your dad and his funeral that we did. It's just an instant flashback. So as we were worshiping, I was thinking and praying for you today and thinking about that destiny where one day you'll go home and see him again, right? And that is the truth of the cross is that it's not just about this life. It's about the next one as well. And we've been celebrating that at our church all, uh, all month long. I told our staff on Tuesday morning when we met together and just talked about ministry and before we prayed for the folks in our church and all the things going on, I kind of gave them an update of June because as all of the June numbers were collected and given to me as, as, uh, as I worked to not only pastor but try to lead the organization, I was blown away by what God did in June 2013 at our church. As a matter of fact, I don't, we, we've never had a month before like June of 2013, and I, man, if we ever have another one, um, it won't be too soon. In June, just in June of this year, we had 63 people at our church make decisions for Christ. In June of this year, we saw 18 people baptized in June of this year. Just in one month, 18 people who went public with their faith and were baptized. And our attendance was up 26% over June of next year, which means our church is about a quarter of a size bigger this June than it was last June. And we don't often boast and brag about attendance because that's usually a lot more about ego than about what God is doing. But when you see God is building your church through people who are coming to Christ, when you see that God is building your church through people who are being baptized, you celebrate growth because you celebrate what God is doing in people. And that's why our church exists. Our church exists. Remember our mission statement to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. So we exist to see people who need to make a decision for Christ, make a decision for Christ, go public with their baptism and begin to live for Jesus. And there's no better way to learn to live for Jesus than studying about the life of Jesus. And that's what we've been doing all summer long at our church. We're in a series called Bedtime Stories, Volume 2. We're just telling some of the greatest stories in the Bible about Jesus and how they apply to our life. So if you have your Bible today, I want you to open to John chapter 2. And if you have your bulletin, I want you to flip it over to the back so you can be prepared to take notes. And our ushers are going to come down the aisle, and they're going to, if you don't have a Bible today and you'd like one, just raise your hand and they'll give it to you, whether you just need one to follow along or whether you don't have a Bible. We've given away nearly 500 Bibles like this since our church has begun. We love to put a a copy of God's Word in people's hand. If you don't have a Bible, this one is yours. Put your name in it. Keep it. It's our gift to you. If you do have one but just want to use one today, uh, just throw it on the table when you leave. But every Sunday, we will come here. And every Sunday, we will open God's Word. And every Sunday, we will learn what God wants to teach us from His Word because we believe that it's His revelation about Himself to mankind. And if we want to know anything about God, it begins right here. So open your Bible. Turn on your, your tablet. Uh, log up on your cell phone, whatever you do to follow scripture as we read. Today we're in John chapter 2, and today the title of our Bible study this morning, if you look at the back of your bulletin, we're going to talk about today the DNA of a miracle. There were lots of people in scripture who God worked through in order to do miracles. Uh, you can go back to Moses and think about the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt. You can fast forward to the time of Elijah. You could even wrap through Acts in the church, but probably the one man who had the sole source of energy to do it himself was Jesus. Jesus was a miracle worker. And I wish I could preach an entire series on the miracles of Jesus, but we have time in this series as we're trying to do kind of a brief overview of Jesus' life. We have time for one. And I want to teach you not just about a miracle, but I want to teach you about the DNA of miracles because I don't know about you, but every now and then I need a miracle in my life. 
Every now and then I need God to like supernaturally step out of heaven and do something in my life. And I may not live within the pages of scripture, but every now and then I need the Jesus of scripture to live in my life. You know what I'm saying? And every now and then I need a miracle. So I don't just want to teach about a miracle. I want to teach the DNA of a miracle in case you ever find yourself in need of a miracle so you know how they happen, how they occur. Because the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he's the same today as he was here, this means Jesus still does miracles. Sometimes we have to just put ourselves in the position to have them done in our life. So here's what John chapter 2 says, the very first miracle of Jesus. John says, John chapter 2 verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Now circle the word woman, men. And don't ever refer to your mother or your wife this way. It will not go well for you. There's a lot of things we can learn from the life of Jesus. Our culture wouldn't accept this one. So just circle that and just cross it out and put like ma'am or mother or, you know, don't, don't repeat that. Don't call your wife woman. Um, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Underline that phrase, my hour has not yet come. That's going to be a big deal here at the end of this message. Verse 5. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they're filled to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brother and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, there is so much to learn from John chapter 2. There's so much to learn about us. There's so much to learn about Jesus. But really the focus of John chapter 2 is this miracle. John wanted to point out this miracle that Jesus did. It's interesting in the book of John, John, John gives us seven miracles that Jesus did, followed by seven kind of discourses of teaching, the perfect number seven weaving together. John wants us to know that Jesus was a miracle worker. And more than that, he wants to help us by putting us in the life of the story. He wants us to understand how when we need a miracle in our life, how we are to go about watching that happen in our life. So let me show you some things about a miracle because some of, you, um, some of you are in a real good place today for a miracle to happen in your life because as I look at John chapter 2, here's the first thing that I realize and as I look through scripture, every miracle it seems like begins with a problem. Every miracle begins with a problem. If you have problems today, you are a candidate for a miracle. Say, I have problems. Look at someone and say, I have problems. Look at someone and say, you have problems. Listen, man, if you got a problem, you are a candidate for a miracle. Some couples are like starting to fight right now. They're like, do not go there. We're not going to do that. And we will pray for a miracle in your marriage because we're, we're said that was just an illustration. You don't have to talk right now. Um, but, but listen, I want your mind for the rest of your life when the phrase, I've got a problem, comes into your head. When the phrase, I've got problems, comes off your lips, for the rest of your life, I want your heart to say you're a candidate for a miracle. 
Because every miracle begins with a problem. This is a good news for everyone right now who's dealing with bad news. Let me say that again. This is a good news for everyone who's dealing with bad news. So my question for you this morning, what's your problem? Now, normally that sounds like a pretty, um, a pretty in-your-face question, what's your problem? But if Jesus is going to do a miracle in your life, you've got to figure out what your problem is. So what, what's your problem today? Is your problem in your marriage? Is your problem in your job? Is your problem with your kids? Is your problem with your health? Is your problem with your confidence? Is your problem with your attitude? Is your problem with your finances? What's your problem today? Because if you can identify your problem, then you can identify where a miracle can and may take place in your life. Look at John chapter 2, verse 3. It's, it's, it's pretty simple here. John chapter 2, verse 3, the miracle begins with a problem. It says in verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now let me tell you why this is a problem. Let me, let me just lay out the scenario for you. I've been studying several different scholars of the book of John this week trying to grasp the truth of John chapter 2 so that I can more fully convey it to you. And here's what I learned about the scenario of John chapter 2 and the magnitude of the problem in John chapter 2. Most likely, here's the scenario, the scenario that Jesus was at the wedding of a relative, more than likely. Because at that time, mostly only very close friends and relatives were invited and probably you had to be a relative to bring 12 of your friends with you, which Jesus did, because it said he and his disciples there. So as I began to study this week, John chapter 2, I learned that most likely he was at the wedding of a relative. Most likely his mother's role at the wedding was to make sure they didn't run out of wine. When you put all these things together, it appears that Jesus' mother was not just stating the obvious, but she was telling Jesus a need that she had. She may have been at a niece or nephew's wedding, and she was in charge of the refreshments at the wedding, and she ran out. Now, what I didn't know as I began to study this week is that weddings were such a big deal in ancient times, usually lasting for a week. Um, if you were to run out of refreshments at a wedding, the wife was in charge of that. The groom's family who had traveled from out of towns, if you weren't able to provide housing, lodging, and food for them, they could actually sue you. So most likely they had a problem. Now, in my former days, I've been at a place where um, people have said, uh, you know, the cops are here, hide the wine. Um, I've never been at a place where they said, here come the lawyers, make the wine. I mean, I've never been at a place where when the, when the law gets involved, they're like, hurry up and get the wine. But that's where we are here. Jesus' mother, who was at the wedding of a relative, probably was in charge of the refreshments, and she came to Jesus and said, I got a problem. Like, I got a, I got a problem. I need you to help me. We don't know whether this was the third day of a wedding. They lasted for seven days, and they ran out really early. Whether it was the third day from Jesus' previous narrative in John chapter 1, but we know that there certainly was a problem. Anytime you see a problem, you know the stage has been set for a miracle. Sometimes the problems are big. Sometimes the problems are small. We see Jesus in his greatest miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. The problem was the people were hungry. That doesn't seem like a very big problem, but where we have a problem, we have an opportunity for a miracle. One time Jesus' disciples were in a boat halfway across the lake. He had a problem. He needed to be where they were, so the miracle was he just walked on the water. See, every miracle begins with a problem. So let me ask you again this morning, what's your problem? Because if you can lay your problem out before God, you are, you are on the first step of finding a miracle in your life. 
Now, as we continue through the text, we see secondly, miracles begin with problems, but most miracles start with the DNA of a miracle. And I think on your, on your sermon notes it said most miracles take, I actually change that later in the week. Most miracles start with, I, I think that's a better way to say it spiritually. Most miracles start with trusting and faithful obedience. We find out in scripture that most times miracles come to people who are moving towards Jesus and people who have, have begun to earnestly seek Jesus for something that they need in their life. So most miracles start with trusting and faithful obedience. I want to show you John chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 because the beginning of this miracle is a problem. The second step of this miracle is not the solution. And, and I want to say this, if you have a problem today and you're looking for the solution, I don't know that you're going to find the solution this morning. My goal is not to give you the solution to your problem. My goal is to allow you to step into the DNA of a miracle so that your problem can be resolved with Jesus working in your life. So the start of the, the miracle was a problem, but look at how it continued. Verse 4, woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Even with all, I mean, it kind of said like, it kind of looks like Jesus said, like, I'm not going to help. I, I, I can't do anything. This is not my problem. Some of you have been wondering why Jesus has not stepped into your problem. You don't feel like Jesus has made your marriage his problem, or your spouse his problem, or your kids his problem, or your finances his problem. And some of you, this is kind of the way that your prayers sound. Jesus, I need your help here. And you feel like Jesus is saying, dude, like, you, you figure it out. That's not my problem. But look what Jesus' mother said. Even though Jesus didn't say, what can I do to help? Jesus' mother said in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever Jesus tells you. Here's my question for you this morning. And I want you to go back to at least January of this calendar year. If you need a miracle... If you are sitting here today and you need a miracle, are you doing everything that Jesus has already told you to do? Like Mary needed a miracle. And she went to Jesus and she said, can you help me? And Jesus said, you know, that's probably not my deal right now. Yet his mother responded by telling the servant, just do whatever he said. His mother basically said this, I trust him. And I have no idea what he's going to do or if he's going to do anything. But I need you, if, if we want to see this thing play out spiritually... Just do whatever he tells you to do. I use the word trusting and the word faithful because of what I've learned in Scripture from people who are both trusting and faithful. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Hebrews 11, we call it a faith chapter in Scripture. Here's what we learn about trusting and being faithful. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he, we must trust. Anyone who brings anything to Jesus must believe that he exists. We have to trust him. And we have to believe that he rewards us. We have, to, we have to believe that he's faithful. You see, anything we bring to Jesus, we have to trust that he'll do it. And we have to believe that our faithfulness to following him will help in that miracle as it unfolds. So let me ask you a question. And let me maybe give you some potential answers. Um, what do you believe that God has told you to do this year? What do you believe God has told you to do this year? Let me give you some answers. Um, did God lay on your heart at the beginning of this year that you were supposed to read your Bible? And you did for a day or two or a week or two? Like something very simple that God said, do this. 
and you did, and then you stopped. Did God lead you this year to pray? And you did, and then you stopped. Did God lead you this year to take a habit that's been in your life for way too long and to stop it, and you did, and then you stopped? Did God lead you this year to serve, to get engaged in serving sacrificially like you've never served before, and you did one or two times, and and then you stopped? Did God lead you this year to give like you've never given before, and you did, and then you stopped? Did God call you this year to start inviting your friends to church or telling your friends about Jesus, and you did once or twice, but then you stopped? Did, did God say, this is the year your marriage has to change? This is the year you have to be more selfless. This is the year you have to be more loving. This is the year you have to start going on dates. This is the year that you and your wife have to start planning things financially together, and you did one or two times, and then you stopped. Is this the year that God spoke into you about parenting an example and influence and you tried it one or two times and then you stopped? Is this the year for those of you who are single adults in here that God said, just be so close to me and I'll give you the right person and don't, don't even go on one date with the wrong person and you did that for a week or two or a month or two and then you said, forget it, God, I'm lonely, I'm gonna do it my way. What did God speak into your heart to do that you did a little bit and then you stopped. Because what has happened is you have short, you've short-circuit your miracle. Because a miracle often starts with trusting and faithful obedience. God told me to do this. I'm just going to be faithful in doing it until I see God move in my life. My question would be, why haven't you followed through in faithful long-term obedience to something you believe God laid on your heart? Has God changed his mind? According to scripture, the answer is no. Do you not love God anymore? I believe all of you would say no. So what has short-circuit, what, what has short-circuited you faithfully and obediently doing what God has called you to do long-term? You've got to answer that question in your heart if you want to see God do a miracle in your life. Most people say they never got past the starting point of their commitment to what God called them to do because they couldn't see, they didn't expect or they, ne or, or they had never experienced the miracle fast enough. So many would say, you know, I'm just kind of waiting on God. And a lot of times we take our disobedience and our lack of follow-through and we spiritualize it and just say, well, I'm waiting on God. It's, re you know, it's really the ball's in God's court now. When Mary said to the servants, the ball's in Jesus' court now. Just do whatever he tells you. I don't know what he's going to do, but do whatever he tells you to do. The fact is this, as we look at John chapter 2, sometimes miracles happen as a reaction to the obedience that we will show to the unknown. Mary didn't explain what was going to happen. Do whatever he says, because here's what I think. I think he's going to have you fill these jars full of water, and then I think he's going to have you pull it out, and I think he's going to turn it to wine, and that will be... Like, everyone would have been excited to take part in that miracle, but she didn't do that. Her, re her obedience to the unknown, just do whatever Jesus tells you, put her in a position for Jesus to do something special in her life. But unfortunately, when it comes to miracles, like God is the opposite of Paul Harvey. Do you know who Paul Harvey is? Like Paul Harvey tells us the, the rest of the story. The more I read in scripture, I find out Jesus tells us like the beginning of the story. You know, and Jesus will say, do this. And we'll be like, great, why? And it's like God says, you'll have to ask Paul Harvey. I only, you know, I only give the beginning of the story. Man, I think about the, when, when our church began. And in September of 2010, um, the Lord laid it on Danielle and I's heart that Lee Summit was the place that we would build our church. And we started talking about when are we going to sell our house? When are we going to move? When are we going to move there? 
it was the middle of the school year, so we had decided, you know, we're not, we won't move in the middle of the school year. That wouldn't be fair to our kids. We didn't really know anyone in Lee Summit. We had some friends in, in Raymore. Um, we didn't know where to move. We didn't know where to live. It was just, it was very unknown for us. And we were at a conference, and Danielle, uh, and Danielle and I were at a conference, and we were listening to a speaker, and God just made it so clear to, like, both, both of We left that conference, and we felt like we were supposed to sell our house. Like God was so clearly saying to us, sell your house. And he didn't say, sell your house and this is what I'll sell it for and you'll make this much money and here's where you'll move. He just said, sell your house. And I remember asking Danielle, where, where will we go? What will we do? What if we can't find a house? What if we can't afford a house? What if our house won't sell? And I would ask God all these questions. God, I need just a little bit more information. And God said, you have, you have my marching orders. Sell your house. Well, what's next? Well, sell your house and you'll see. Do you trust me enough to be faithful? You see, some of you, God has spoken to you, and you'll say, God, if you will just tell me the end of the story, I'll do the beginning of the story. And God says, that's not faith. I mean, anyone could do that. That's not faith. And it was like God only began, gave us the beginning of the story. So we put a sign in our yard. The realtor said, you can't sell your house. You need to wait till the spring. Really, we wanted to hear that because we didn't want to move in the middle of the school year. But God kept saying, sell your house. So, man, we put a sign in our yard, and 21 days it sold. And about 60 days later, we had, we had tried, we had put an offer on a foreclosure in Lee Summit, where we now live. And I remember several of you were here who were helping us pack the house that day. We had packed the truck. Everything was out of the house. All the belongings that we had were sitting in a big U-Haul and in the back of trucks and vans. And everyone said, where are we going? And we said, we don't know. Our loan had not been approved yet. Our house had not been approved. We literally moved out of our house to nowhere. And we said, we'll call you in a day or two, and we'll either go to a storage unit or an apartment or this house. We, we don't know. God hasn't told us yet. He hasn't shown us. All he said was sell our house, so we did that. Jesus' mother, all she said was just do what he says. Well, what's he going to say? I don't know, but do what he says. See, some of you will never see the miracle because you cannot be faithful and trusting to the little things Jesus asks you to do. Because you, we're like elementary school students. Do what Jesus tells you. Why? Well, because we need a miracle. Well, how's he going to do it? Well, here's probably what he'll say. Well, how long will it take? You know, I mean, those are the kind of questions we ask spiritually. And sometimes we can't get to faithful, trusting obedience. And because we can't get to faithful, trusting obedience, we live in our problem rather in the miraculous solution to the problem. God is not Paul Harvey. God's the anti-Paul Harvey. Paul gives the rest of the story. Jesus gives step one of the story. And it's kind of like a progressive dinner. Like if you'll do step one, you'll get step two. And if you do step two, you'll get step three, and on and on and on. And then fact number three about our miracle in John chapter two. Miracles begin with problems. So if you've got a problem, you're in a good place spiritually. Miracles then begin to take form as you're just faithful and trusting to do exactly what God has told you to do. But number three, here's, here's what we find out when miracles happen. The mundane can become miraculous when Jesus gets involved. Like the mundane can become miraculous when Jesus gets involved. Jesus asked the servants to do a pretty mundane task. Not only was the task mundane, in my, in my opinion, the task was miserable as well. Look at verses 6 and 7. His mother said to the servants, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. 
So they filled them to the brim. Look at verse 8. It won't be on the screen. I'm adding this now. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Now, put put yourself in the place of the servants. Think about what Jesus asked them to do. They're out of wine. We need wine. The master of the ceremonies has the, the ability to pursue litigation against the person who ran out of wine. So here's what we're going to do. Jesus had never done a miracle before. They didn't know he could do this. this. This wasn't the guide to them who had raised the dead. This was just Mary's son who was at his cousin's wedding, maybe. And she says, do whatever he says. So he says, fill the water. Now, have any of you ever been a water boy for a sports team? Like I was. My dad was a coach and I was a water boy. It was my job to get the water from the field house and to carry it across the field uh, before the game started and then again at halftime. And we had the big orange 10-gallon Gatorade jugs. And do you know how heavy a 10-gallon Gatorade jug full of water and ice is? Like those are heavy, right? Now let's make them 30-gallon and let's make them made out of stone and let's get six of them. Like you're talking about a pot of water that had to have weighed hundreds of pounds. And by the way, they didn't take it to the spigot and fill it up, right? This was Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. They probably had to go to a lake. They probably had to go to a river. I mean, what a miserable task that Jesus had asked them to perform. So they go find water. It doesn't say if it took a day. It may have taken a day. And they come back with 180 gallons of water of water, I imagine. And by the way, these were not his disciples. These were the servants at the wedding. These weren't guys who ran around with Jesus. These were just guys who just met Jesus. But his mother had given them the the impression that if they just do what Jesus said, something cool could happen. So they fill up with water and they bring it back. They're like, here's the water. What do we do now? And he's like, go give the master of the ceremonies a drink. Now, in those days, 2,000 years ago, you couldn't even drink straight water. Like it had so much bacteria and infection in it. That's why Paul told Timothy later in scripture, um, add a little wine with your water. Like water would make you sick. So you're going to the chief of the wedding banquet and you're going to insult him by giving him river water or lake water or whatever. And you've got to be thinking, you're, you're out of your mind. Yet they go and dip a cup out. And I imagine trembling, it says they did so. Like spilling the water. They take it and give it to the guy. At that point, bang, trusting and faithfulness and obedience and just doing the mundane things, Jesus, to tell you, at that point, Jesus supernaturally supernaturally stepped in and a miracle occurred. Now, folks, when when you think about June 2013 at JCI, like I, I would call, from what I understand spiritually, I would call June at our church miraculous doesn't happen in a lot of churches. It happens in some, but it doesn't happen in a lot that this many people are making decisions, that this many people are getting baptized, that the churches grow. That doesn't happen a lot. I would call that miraculous, but I, I wouldn't say that the miracle started in June. I wouldn't even say that the miracle started in September. Why? Because I go back way further in the mundane task of Journey Church International than you do. I pulled this out of my file last night after thinking about this message. This is the, um, the acceptance letters for the Articles of Incorporation for Journey Church International um, in the state of Illinois. Because 
I did not want to plant a church in Kansas City. And even though God so clearly told me, Christian, you're supposed to plant a church in Jackson County, and even so we started driving around Jackson County, when it finally came time to put rubber to the road and to contact the state of Missouri to ask if I could have permission to organize a nonprofit agency, I just thought, you know, I don't want to be in Missouri. So on the exact same day, I incorporated Journey Church International, Missouri, and Illinois because I knew in my heart I was not going to stay in Missouri. So for a year, until we dissolved it, we had Journey Church International in Illinois and Missouri. And I had driven around Missouri, and I had been to Lee Summit, and I had been to all the great churches in Lee Summit. And I thought, well, Lee Summit doesn't need another church. Lee Summit doesn't need me. Lee Summit has a church plant already. There was a church plant meeting in this school when God called us to start a church. And before that one had been here, there had been a different one here. And I thought, Lee Summit doesn't need me. I need to go someplace where I don't know anyone. I need to go someplace where I can start fresh. And, and the DNA of our church, all God had told me is, I asked God, show me a sign of where I'm supposed to be. All God said to me was, read your Bible. Now, I've heard that since like I was in third grade Sunday school. Read your Bible. Now, what do you mean read your Bible? All God would speak to me was read your Bible. So I started reading my Bible with one of my accountability partners. We started reading it. We tried to go 40 days without missing a day, and then and we did that. And at the end of that 40 days, he said, I feel like I'm supposed to go a year. And I kind of had to do that because when you're mentoring someone and they grow more spiritually than you do, it makes you look bad. So it's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do that too. If you're going to do that, I should do that because I'm supposed to be stronger than you. And so I, you know, I got into the Word every day for a year. And in the course of trying to force this church into South Chicago, where my mom and dad and my sisters and their brothers and a lot of comfort existed for me, I was reading my Bible one day and I read across a word that forever changed my life, a word that begun the miracle of June at our church. I, I read a word called Rehoboth. Um, Rehoboth is spelled R-E-H-O-B-O-T-H, if you want to write that down. You probably don't even know what it means, but I, I want to tell you how God in the mundane task of read your Bible delivered a miracle to me. Because in Genesis 26, 22, Abraham's son was fighting over land with a king that lived there and he was like, he kept saying, I got to get out of this land. God had said, go to Canaan. That's where you're going to be. And, Abraham, and Isaac was like, I don't want to be, there's already people here. I don't want to go to Canaan. Can I go to someplace else? And every time he would try to start something, there was conflict and it was difficult. And I just thought, you know, I want to run from conflict. I want to run from difficulty. They, they don't need me there. I, I just need to go someplace else. And then I read Genesis 26, 22 that says this. And he, Isaac, moved from there and he dug another well and they didn't quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth because he said, here's what Rehoboth means, for now the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. See, the miracle of, of June at this church started when the Lord said to me, Christian, take your articles of incorporation for Illinois and dissolve them. It's not where you're supposed to go. You're supposed to be in Lee Summit, Missouri. And yes, there's a lot going on there. And yes, it's in a place that might breed some conflict for you, but I've made room for you there. And you're going to be fruitful as a church there. So you've got to go. Now, what if I wouldn't have read my Bible? I'd be pastor in a church south of Chicago if it was even still in existence. I would have sold everything and I would have moved there. I would have missed the miracle of this church because I wasn't willing to do the mundane task. Sometimes the tasks are mundane. Sometimes they're miserable. But sometimes God wants to see how faithful we'll be to the miserable mundane task before he'll deliver the miracle in our life. We were going to youth camp a few weeks ago and we were watching the movie, The Karate Kid, the new one. We remember the old one, Wax On, Wax Off, Mr. Miyagi and Danielson. Um, but in the new Karate Kid, we're, we're watching The Karate Kid 
And this scene comes on that reminds me about the frustration Christians have with doing the mundane, and they quit before the miracle happens. Take a look. Well, Mr. Han, I told you. I get it, okay? Be respectful. I got it. I put my jacket on a thousand times, I took it off a thousand times, okay? This is stupid. I'm done. They can beat me up if they want to. And you know why you only have one student? Because you don't know Kung Fu. So, Joy. What? Come here. Check it on. Mr. Han, I already... Check it on. Check it on. I'll have a jacket Check on. Check it on. He's strong. Check it on. Firm. Check it off. Remember, always strong. Check it off. Strong. Left foot back. Right feet back. Left feet back. Pick up his jacket. Focus. Always concentrate. Left back. Right foot back. Pick up a jacket. Stay. Pick up your jacket. Strong. Hang it up. Hang it up. Hang it up. And editing. Strike. Hang up and edit you. No face. Check it out. Kung Fu lives in everything we do, Xiao Dui. Seen how we put on the jacket, how we take off the jacket, and lives in how we treat people. Everything is kung fu. Makes you want to do kung fu, doesn't it? You know, let's just forget the sermon. Let's just hit something or somebody or kick something. I wonder how many of you, you're sick and tired of reading your Bible every day for a thousand days. You've read your Bible and you've read your Bible and you've prayed and nothing has happened. 
You've passed over, those of you who are single. I've passed over the last 10 single girls and guys that don't love God, but I'm not passing over. I'm just, I'm done with that, God. I'm done with your way, God, and I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to quit my job without knowing where I'm going to work. I'm going to quit. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give up on my marriage because it doesn't work. My kids, I guess, are just lost forever. How many of us quit before the moment of realization that God is doing a miracle in us? You know, in John... 2 verse 6, there's one word that's so key. The miracle happened, it says, nearby Jesus. I want you to circle that word nearby in your text because what we're going to find out is to have a miracle occur in our life, we have to continually place ourselves nearby Jesus. So are you living your life in close proximity to Jesus? Or are you kind of far from God Yet sitting on a couch telling God, if you want to do a miracle for me anytime, God, I got some problems, God. But you're not staying right there day after day after day. You're not staying in the DNA of who Jesus is. So what do you believe that God has called you to do this year? Because your miracle is on the other side of the mundane faithfulness and trusting. Did God call you to read your Bible? You might want to start again. Because who knows what's in there for you? Did God call you to pray? You might want to start again. Did God call you to quit some habit? You, you might want to stop that again. Did God call you to serve? You might want to re-engage. Did God call you to give? You, you might want to give. Did God call you to talk to people about Jesus? You may want to do that. Did God call you to fix your marriage this year? Then why did you quit? It's only July. It's not the end of the year yet. Did God call you to pour into your kids more in parenting this year than you've ever done before? Did God call you as a couple to begin dating again so that you could love each other? What has God said, do, that you're just, I'm just sick of doing that. It's not working. That if you would just stay near enough to Jesus would work. You see, the purpose of miracles as we read this text is, is really twofold. Here's, here's why Jesus wants to do a miracle in your life. You don't have to beg him to do a miracle. He desires to do things in your life. He desires to help with your problems. Why? Because of John 2.11. It says, what Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why does God do miracles? Why does God solve his problems? He does it to reveal his glory. He does it to prove that he's God. He does it to prove that he can be trusted. He does it to prove that we can put all our faith in him. He does it to prove that he's worth following. It's the same reason he built the Garden of Eden for Adam, so that when Adam got there, he said, wow, what a great God. It's the same reason he spoke to, God, to Moses out of a burning bush, so that when Moses saw it, he said, I've never seen anything like that before. It's the same reason he crushed Egypt with the ten plagues, so they'd say, there's no God like your God. It's the same reason he parted the Red Sea, so the Israelites would know, if we'll just trust God, he'll always take care of us. It's the same reason the sun stood still over a battle, so that the Israelites would know as long as God is on our side, we can fight all day and all night. It's the same reason the walls of Jericho fell, so the people of Jericho would know that you can't keep our God out. You see, God works miracles to reveal his glory. Why? So that, so that people will believe in him. So that people will put their faith in him. So that people will place their trust in him. But I want to show you something because I believe God spoke to me so clearly this week. I believe this message for our church and the people of our church, the hundreds who have just made decisions, the hundreds who have been a Christian less than three or four years, those of you just recommitting and get back on track, I believe God spoke this into my heart for you in John, verse, in John chapter 2 verse 4. His mom came to him and, and she said, Jesus, I need some help with this. And his answer was, my time has not come. 
thought, man, what a, what a strange answer. So I studied that this week, and, and the, the scholars told me this about my time has not yet come. They said Jesus' main goal in life was to come and die for people and redeem him. However, it was not time for that yet. Jesus had to do little miracles along the way so that his believers slowly would place their faith in him, slowly place their trust in him, so that when his time came, their time would come. So that when Jesus was ready to reveal his glory, they were ready to fulfill their purpose. And God spoke to me about some people in the church beginning with me right now. See, I, I know one of the things I struggle with, one of the things I'm asking God to reveal to me in his glory is that I worry and I struggle with trust and I worry with faith. And, and you know what? What I learned from this message is my time has not yet come to place all of my faith and trust in God. I wish I could, but I haven't, but it's coming. You see, some of you are here and, and you're wondering why you're still addicted to what you've been addicted to. Your time has not come, but your time is coming. Some of you are wondering why your marriage still stinks and you wonder if it'll ever get better. And the time has not come for your marriage to be healed, but the time is coming. Some of you are wondering when your financial troubles are going to be over and your time has not come, but your time is coming. Some of you, you hear me preach about giving in your heart. You're, you've been a Christian a year or two, and when you hear me preach about tithing, all you want to do is get the checkbook and give away all your money, but your heart's not there yet. Your time has not come, but your time is coming. There are some people in this church who right now are doing what they can in the experience with, with God that they've had, but one day they're going to be the greatest givers at our church. There are some of you, you're not going to small group yet because you're, you're still nervous, but your time is coming and you're not only going to go to a small group, you're going to lead a small group, you're going to be the best small group leader ever. There's some of you who your heart longs to be baptized, you want to take that step with Jesus, but you're scared and you're nervous and you watch people be baptized and your time has not come, but your time is coming. See, I don't know what your problem is, but I know who your miracle worker is and his name is Jesus. Jesus. And if we will stay near Jesus, if we will stay near Jesus as a church and as individuals and as parents and as husbands and as wives, if we will stay near Jesus, our time may not be here today. We may not have kicked anxiety. We may not have kicked worry. We may not have kicked discouragement. We may not have kicked our marriage where we want it to be. We may not have our kids where we want to be. Our finances may not be where we want to be. Our faith may not be where we want it to be. But if we stay near to Jesus, our time has not come, but our time is coming. If we have enough intimate moments to Je with Jesus, slowly we'll believe anymore, we'll believe anymore, we'll believe anymore, we'll believe anymore. These disciples, three years into living every day with Jesus, still didn't have it figured out. And, and we want to sit in church and we want to say, I've been coming to church for a year, I've been coming to church for two years, I recommitted my life two weeks ago, why can't I be perfect spiritually yet? Your time has not come, but your time is coming. Keep pressing forward. Keep moving forward. Stay nearby Jesus. Do the mundane. Do the monotonous. Every day, drop the jacket. Pick up the jacket. Drop the jacket. Pick up the jacket. Because one day, the water is going to turn to wine, and you'll be trembling, figuring out, wondering whether or not God's going to do something. But when he does, he'll be your God, like he was David's God, like he was Joshua's God, like he was his disciples' God. And the rest of your life, you'll live and just say, I just want to do what Jesus says. Because I can always trust that even when I don't know what that means, a miracle is on the other side. What's your problem? Because therein lies your miracle if you will stay close to Jesus.